Amen. Amen. Okay. All righty. Well, if you will, please go ahead and open up your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. We're just continuing this work, this little survey that we're doing through the book of 1 Timothy. Again, we kind of set out to do this um, just because of its relevance to the systematic theology doctrine of the doctrine of the church that we are um, going through, through systematic theology. And um, last week we were in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Emilio graciously um, stepped up and took us through that chapter. Um, and what we saw there was the qualifications for an elder that were given to us in the first seven verses, and that's as far as Emilio got. But I'm not mad at him. Because I'd actually, um, believe it or not, not planned to go any farther than he got last week, but there was one specific reason for that. And that is because as you move into chapter 8 and following, and you get to the requirements of the deacon, um, for the most part, they are um, a, a repetition, a recapitulation of the requirements for an elder. If you've ever done a comparison between those two, I, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a, a really significant difference between the requirements to be an overseer and the requirements to be a deacon, which may surprise you. Um, if you haven't looked at that before, I think just in evangelicalism as a whole, we may have we just hold our deacons maybe to a lower standard. I mean, after all, we have Scott Beatty as a deacon, so, I mean, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I'm joking, of course. But I, I think that's just significant. So I wasn't going to go through all of the requirements for the deacons as well. Of course, um, I could just quickly mention, the. I think, the biggest distinctive, of course, between the requirements for an elder and the requirements for a deacon are that the elders or the overseers are uh, required to be able to teach. That's the most significant difference between those two. Um, but even in that, I, I was going to point this out, and then, and then we'll move on, but I thought another significant point about that fact that there is that one difference between the elders needing to be able to teach, um, just because specifically that's a function of being an overseer in the church, is that you need to lead in that way. But it was interesting to me to note that out of the 15 requirements that are there for overseers and elders, one of them is the requirement to be able or apt to teach. Now, I'm saying that because I know, again, in evangelicalism, we put so much emphasis on a man's ability to teach that we might have a tendency to overlook the other 14 requirements. So how would you summarize... If you can remember back as far back as last week, you have that one out of 15 requirements that the man ought to be able to be able to teach. How would you summarize the other 14 characteristics of a man who's going to pursue the eldership? Above reproach. Above reproach, I think, is the way that Paul, I mean, that's the way he begins the requirements. And, and the commentators agree that that's the overarching characteristic and everything else kind of flows out from that. So... Um, another yes, sir. Well, I was gonna say I think a good way to summarize it is just they're a model Christian. I mean, yeah. simply put, it's not yeah. called to anything other than able to teach. Nothing other than that is out of the ordinary. It's just kind of 
being faithful to, to the calling of all believers. That's right. Yeah, so you could say it being above reproach, being a model, just being a, having a godly life in general. That's the call. And that's where the emphasis even is. That's 14 out of the 15 requirements. Just, is this man godly? Right? So I think as you go to look at the deacon's requirements, it's really just kind of re- reiterating that standard for even the deacons, that they're to have you know, a model life in a sense, of course, not sinless perfectionism by any means, or none of us will qualify, but um, you just have to be above reproach. There can't be any outstanding sin or problem in your life that might affect your leadership or your, your ability to lead the church in any way. And as we know from just the theme of 1 Timothy and the problems going on in Timothy's church is that these qualifications, Paul is reiterating these to Timothy. I'm sure Timothy already knew these, um, but Paul's laying them down again because these things are safeguards for the church. These, these qualifications are safeguards for the church um, so that the church does not lay hands on, on men who, who don't meet those requirements um, that that's what these standards are for. And so for Heritage Grace as well, we need to make sure that these are our standards as well so that we likewise um, guard the church of God as Paul has intended. So why all the real concern then? Um, why not just find some guys who are really good at preaching, who are really articulate, and despite um, maybe their, their lifestyle or their sanctification, why not put them... Uh, over the flock. Well, that seems to be kind of the, the transition here as we go to chapter 4. Notice chapter 4 and verse 1. Paul's going to tell us a big reason that we need to be careful about who is put into leadership. Chapter 4 verse 1 goes on to say, But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. So the flow of thought seems to be, why do we need godly men in the church as leaders? Well, the short answer to that would be apostasy, the reality of apostasy that comes from false teaching. Apostasy that comes from false teaching. Now, if you remember back to some of the first classes we referenced several times, Um, one instance in which the Spirit was already explicitly saying that this was going to happen in Ephesus. If you remember back in Acts chapter 20, where the Apostle Paul was warning the elders in Timothy's church that this was going to happen. The the, the Spirit was already explicitly saying that this was going to happen. People in Timothy's church are are falling away from the faith. Obviously, this apostasy is, is, is revealing that they were never truly of the Lord. And we know that because uh, they begin to listen to a different voice. They begin to follow after a different voice. They did not follow the voice of the Good Shepherd. Um, But Paul tells us here that they actually are following the voices of demons. The voices of demons. Do you, uh, brothers and sisters, believe in demons? Isn't Isn't that interesting that I would even ask that question? But I mean, demons are unbelievable in a sense. We've never seen demons. I've never seen a demon, but... I can assure you that demons are as real as you are. Demons are as real as you and I are. And these demons actually have doctrines. These demons have doctrines. Um, But I guess even the scarier thing than to know that there is actually demons is that 
Um, demons do not show up in our churches with uh, pitchforks in their hands mm-hmm. or you know the scary faces that maybe Hollywood you know depicts demons as being. No, the work of demons shows up through the work of men. Maybe very articulate men, maybe very good-looking men that demons can work through. And this is what the Apostle Paul is warning the church about. These men who Paul is warning Timothy about are actually liars, he says. They are liars. Um, As the way he describes them, it seems to be that they even know the truth. But because they've seared their consciences, they're willing to suppress the truth to propagate their doctrines, these doctrines of demons. And, of course, we know that Paul goes on to say that they're doing all this to gain influence, for their own gain. They're willing to suppress the truth, to teach something else, contrary to the Bible, and they're doing this for their own good. They're hypocrites, he says. Um, in other words, they say one thing and they do another. Again, that's why the Apostle Paul listed out all of these requirements, pretty extensive lists of requirements for church leaderships because we need to make sure as best as humanly possible um, that the men that we put in leadership that are going to be teaching especially we need to make sure that they are legit in that sense as much as we possibly much as we possibly can so these men's the the and even the demonic intentions obviously will manifest themselves right nobody's going to get away with this um, hidden falsehood forever And here Paul in verse 3 mentions what is the manifestation of the demonic um, leading in these men's teachings. Because verse 3 says these men are those who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods. As I said, they didn't manifest any type of um, uh, demonic manifestations like James White, you know, does. I don't know if y'all seen The Last Dividing Line. But that's not how they manifest themselves. They actually manifest themselves here through their teaching. You see, through their teachings, Paul says, this is how they're manifesting their uh, demonic um, foundations. And so what's the evidence here that we see that this is demonic teaching? Well, these, these kinds of teachings are known as asceticism. Asceticism is, 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 is a, a teaching or a belief that through the harsh treatment of the body um, that one can obtain to maybe a, another level of godliness or sanctification by, by treating the body harshly through things like this, through extra-biblical regulations um, in order to seek to a level of godliness. Um, really, it's just another form of legalism. It's another form of legalism if, if men like this in the church are holding the church to these things. And so these unbiblical teachings here that Paul's um, listing off as, as being things that should not be abstained from, that is, that is a false teaching, is uh, to, to command people or to require the church to forbid them from marriage and foods, he says, from marriage and foods. Now, how would we know that that is a false teaching? Say you were in Ephesus at a time and some men rose up saying, that you're to abstain from marriage and you're to abstain from foods. How would you know that that is a false teaching? Yes, sir. Well, scriptures plainly teach that, for instance, men are to, you know, to have wives and raise up godly children and bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And if we abstain from marriage, then we can't do that. 
Right, I mean, that was kind of a gimme, right? How do we know? Well, the Bible clearly says, right, that these things are not to be forbidden. Uh, marriage, for instance, I, I thought of Genesis 2. We're there from the very beginning. It is not good that man be alone, God said. I will make a helper suitable for him. So marriage from the very beginning, God created, God ordained institution, food, food from the times of Noah, Genesis chapter nine, verse three, God had already told uh, Noah, every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I give the green plant. Yes, sir. But this is tough because they don't have a new Testament and Gentiles that are saved wouldn't really have a knowledge of the old Testament. Hmm. Right, right, right. They may not have the New Testament inscripturated at this time, but they certainly have the teachings of Christ. Right? That's how they're Christians. They, they've heard but, the but teachings. But I'm just saying it's not that easy for them because they are very limited on to what some of them have been told to this point, which sure. is part, part of why I think Paul's being trying to be very thorough on what he's telling them because they may not know better. Yeah, I mean, that's the reason we have the New Testament epistles to explain some of these things. But the reason I say they already... They already could have known, certainly, um, about this teaching about food, for instance, because Jesus had already taught it. Um, I just put the quote from Mark 7, 18 here. Jesus says, Are you so lacking in understanding? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from the outside cannot defile him, because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and is then eliminated? And then Mark tells us through that teaching that thus, in doing this, Jesus was declaring all foods clean. And so Mark 7, that's pretty early in Jesus' ministry that Jesus was making that transition um, from what? He's making the transition um, from the law of Moses, in a sense. This law of Moses had, had actual dietary restrictions. Um, but obviously the, the dietary restrictions there were, the purpose of them was to set the people of Israel apart from the nations. That was one thing that God used to set them apart. So the foods being restricted were not in and of themselves, more or less spiritual in that sense. Um, Jesus says anything you eat is just passed through the body and, and is disposed of. So these things aren't defiling a man. Um, and so I thought I would just clarify as well that um, there are without a doubt uh, foods that are healthier than others. So we're not talking about that aspect of eating foods. There's, nobody's going to argue that Whataburger is not more healthy than McDonald's. Right, Whataburger is the standard. Uh, so, but yeah, so what I'm saying is definitely he's speaking of a, of a spiritual defilement as if like you're eating a certain food and that's sinful. That's what he's talking about. He's not necessarily speaking about even an overabundance of a certain kind of food that would lead to gluttony or something that's obviously sinful as well. But obviously the answer to my question was marriage and, and food both as verse 3 goes on to say, these are things which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by the means of the word of God in prayer. Now, I just thought that out of all the false teachings that somebody could come up with, that this is what they came up with, um, it seems kind of kind of a strange thought, obviously a demonically inspired thought. Um, these people are misled by this kind of teaching. So I thought I'd ask the question, is, are these, even these specific errors, still made anywhere today? 
um, in, in different religions that we might come across. That's, that's in what aspect? The marriage or the food? Forbidding of the foods, right? They, they still try to, I think for the most part, just try to keep to the Old Covenant dietary laws. And maybe even additional to that, I think they have uh, rules. Brother Mike? They forbid marriage, right? For the, for the priesthood, they forbid marriage. That's right. Jonathan, do you think it's something else? Um, just on the food level, I know of some independent Baptists that are, that just, uh, as a personal thing, they don't eat pork in the, in the sense of they think that um, it's just the reason God put it there was because it's healthy. It's had a healthy oh, yeah, yeah. to eat it. Right, because it's a dirty animal. It's a right. dirty animal. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but, uh, that's right. But at the same time, they eat shrimp. Right, right, right. Bottom feeders. Um, but yeah, that's right. These kinds of errors are still propagated even to this very day, and people are still following it, despite. I mean, that just goes to show you how blindingly sinful mankind is. That the Bible can give explicit teachings on this or that or the other, and people still, you know, are are are. Um, are tricked in and duped into following this kind of teaching, even though the Bible says these kind of teachings are doctrines of demons, and people still willfully um, give themselves to it. So thank God for his grace that we can see these things. But asceticism and extra-biblical rules, brothers and sisters, do not count, and they do not lead unto godliness. Um, And Timothy has a duty because of this to remind the church of these things. Verse 6, Paul tells Timothy, in pointing out these things to the brethren, now what things, probably specifically the the first five verses, but everything he said uh, previous to this point, Timothy would be uh, a good servant of Christ Jesus, he says, if he points these things out to the brethren, constantly being nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. Now, uh, William Mount, in his commentary, um, sets this verse apart as what he's saying is the, um, the, the, the quintessential verse. He says this verse functions as the title of the rest of the chapter, in a sense. What Paul is telling Timothy here is, is his duty, his job, is, is to be pointing out to the brethren, teaching the brethren everything that Paul is telling him right now. And so that's... That's really where the rest of the chapter flows from, is Paul telling Timothy, Brother Timothy, teach the church these things. Protect the church with these things that I'm telling you. And so what flows out for the rest of chapter 4 is kind of like a rapid fire, in a sense, um, list of commands that flow out of this one um, command that the Apostle Paul is teaching. There's actually 12 imperatives that follow here in the rest of the chapter. There's 12 commands Um, by way of application that the Apostle Paul gives to Timothy. And we're just going to go through as many as we can with the time that we have. So let's look at the first one. The first one in verse 7, the Apostle Paul is telling Timothy, first of all, to stay on the path he's been following. Don't veer away from the words of the faith and follow after the false teachers. And this is how Paul describes it in verse 7. He says, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. That's the first command. Have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. This is Paul's view of the false teacher's teaching. Um, It seems that Paul has so little regard 
for these teachings. He considers them so obviously to be an error in a sense that he doesn't pull a John Owen and write a 600-page rebuttal to their teachings you know, with biblical proofs and arguments. Um, in a sense, as, as he responds to the heresy of asceticism, um, he almost resorts, in a sense, to like just an ad hominem argument and kind of makes fun of them, saying that these things are, are silly. These are like old wives' tales. In no way should you be following after these things. Um, but Paul, as, as we've already seen, has, has given an answer to the errors. Um, so he's saying, don't, he's just saying avoid these things altogether. But he doesn't stop with the negative. He goes on for the second command to give a positive. What should you be doing? Yes, you should be avoiding false teaching um, and things that are silliness, but um, there's something that's very serious that you positively should be seeking after and not shunning. And then he goes on to say, on the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of a little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Now, I remember dealing with this text pretty recently. We brought this text up when we were going through the doctrine of sanctification um, because really um, the Apostle Paul is just helpfully making a distinction between two different kinds of disciplines. Um, first of all, he speaks of, of a bodily discipline, of, of what you could consider like a physical discipline, a physical exercise, which he says is of a little profit. It's of a little profit. There are temporary benefits, certainly, um, to exercise and, and physical um, bodily exercise. And Paul's certainly not rejecting exercise wholesale, but he's using this by way of illustration. He's making comparison. The other side of the comparison is, is godliness. Godliness or spiritual discipline. He says this is profitable for all things. For all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come obviously probably referring to the eternal rewards that godliness will, will bring to you for all of eternity. And so what Paul's saying is there really is no comparison to be made. There's no comparison. There's, there should be no comparison between your life and where your efforts are at and where your um, drive is, comparatively speaking, between bodily discipline, physical exercise maybe, as an example of that, versus spiritual disciplines. There should be no comparison in your mind between these things. And so, by application, the question is, what, what has priority in your life? What has priority in your life? Um, worship of the body is nothing new. Obviously, Paul's able to use this example because um, people have always had a desire to, um, I say worship the body, that would be the, the worst form of this, right? But, it's a, but there's a balance in all of this. And one is to certain, what Paul's saying is one is to have the priority. And it should not even be a close tie, right? You should consider your spiritual growth and your spiritual development, that kind of discipline, far, far above um, temporary um, bodily exercise. So how can you objectively know how you're doing in that area? Where the balance is in your area? Well, with a lot of things, I think... Where's your time being spent and where's your money being spent? Right? That's usually a pretty objective, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so we all, have, we all have those questions and those decisions to make in our lives, right? Because both are profitable and both are good and we should probably be doing both, 
But it, Paul's speaking of here the, the balance, right, between these two things and where, where really is your, your balance. Um, there's, there's liberty, brothers and sisters, to do just about anything you want in your life as long as you fulfilled your duty to God as, as a believer and as a Christian. Whatever other time you have, you can do almost whatever you want. That's not sinful. But as long as you're fulfilling your duty to God and, and, and being godly and that's your priority, then there's all the liberty in the world. Um, I used to play golf until Russell beat me so bad I don't want to play anymore. <laughs> I mean, I'd probably still be playing if it wasn't for that. Um, so that's my excuse. But, yeah, it's sinful. Golf is sinful. Let's not play that anymore. Um, I Oh, oh no, Cassie! Cassie scratched my balls. That's what it was. Cassie was scratching my balls before I played them. That's why. Um, I think this old adage is true. Just by way of an example, uh, where they say that if you're too busy to pray, you're too busy. That's just one aspect of godliness, of godly discipline. But I know that's all of our excuse, isn't it? Oh, I'm just too busy. I just can't work it in. Well, then you literally are too busy, and something needs to be put on the altar and sacrificed. Whatever it is, whatever it is, but I mean, that's objectively, we can't be too busy for godliness. That's, 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 that's very dangerous. So now in verse 9, the Apostle Paul is saying that all of this focus that he's been giving to here in verse 8 to disciplining yourself into godliness, this actually becomes one of the third of, of what are five trustworthy statements in Paul's um, pastoral epistles. He says that this is a trustworthy, uh, trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. Full acceptance. Now, these trustworthy statements, I said there's five of them in the Pauline. First Timothy has four of them and Titus has one. But these are just these common phrases that Paul has to accentuate his points. A lot of the commentators assume that these are trustworthy statements and that the whole church has already together recognized these things as being true and faithful teachings that should be accepted by everybody without question. There should be no questioning um, these teachings that Paul says are trustworthy statements deserving of, of full acceptance. And disciplining yourself unto godliness is certainly one of those things. Now notice, as Paul goes on here, just what I think is the perfect balance that Paul gives to this description of how the Christian is to live a life of godliness. How do we do that? How do we live the Christian life um, with, the, with a Pauline balance? Verse 10 says, For it is this, that we labor and we strive. Hear that language of laboring and striving? For the Apostle Paul, um, godliness is not some sort of passive cakewalk into heaven. That's not the language that the Apostle Paul uses. That's not how he viewed his Christian life. His Christian life and his calling were worked out by laboring and striving. That word agonizo he'll use, that agonizing work of pursuing God. Yet, and by the way, I say that there's a balance to this. That, of course, we know it's not a, a pull yourself up by your bootstraps and, and do this in the flesh type of Christianity. Right? We know that. Um, it's a striving that comes to looking to our Savior who is our hope and our strength, because that's what he goes on to say. Um, he says, we do this because we have fixed our hope on the living God. That's why we do this. We strive, we agonize, we labor, 
all of these things because we have fixed our hope on the living God. So we do these things looking to Christ. We do these things looking to Christ. I just say it's both are there. The perfect, the perfect balance is there in this verse, Pauling's view of, of sanctification. And I'm just saying that both truths must be present in your life. Um, you must be theologically and actively depending upon the grace that God provides you. But with that grace, you're to be striving. You're to be striving with that grace unto growth, into godliness, into seeking um, greater holiness. So the theology must be there. Um, your motivation must be right theologically. And the application is that you need to be taking that grace and, and striving unto godliness. Now, I don't know how many of y'all were even paying attention to what I just said because you probably were already looking at the next phrase um, that is an often troublesome phrase for um, us good Calvinists. But Paul said here, as he's speaking of this God to whom we are looking to and whom we're fixing our hope on, he says, God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. That God is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. So the question then, of course, is in what sense is God the Savior of all men? Would somebody want to maybe speak to that? How do you understand that phrase um, in order to be consistent with everything else the Bible says? Brandon, how would you think about that? I would that? say God is the Savior of all men in a, um, in, in, a, in, a, in a temporal and physical way. He is a savior of all men, unbelievers, believers. But for the elect, for especially for the believers, he is a savior to us in a uh, eternal and spiritual way. God, yep. That's definitely one de- legitimate way to look at this passage because um, the word there translated for savior is not always speaking of salvation <laughs> in a in a, a spiritual sense. There are temporal aspects, especially in the Old Testament, how God was the Savior of people of Israel temporally through, um, through problems, right, and through uh, tribulations and through oppressions. He was the Savior in a temporal sense. So in that sense, God does um, preserve all men through common grace in that sense. So a lot of people um, can see it in that sense as if God is the Savior temporally in a common grace sort of way for all men, but especially in a salvific way for believers, um, Carlos, did I see you raise your hand? Got an idea? Mine was real simple, more like the only thing that's offered for all men as a savior. That's right. Yeah, that's that's it's definitely not offered to the animals, not offered to the angels. It's, it's just men. Right. Yeah. So maybe like some commentators point in to make your argument, they're saying like the closest contextual clue to look at here in this statement is is what God, or, or what Paul is actually, this, the phrase that Paul's actually modifying by saying he's the Savior of all men. Well, what is that original phrase that he's speaking of? He says, we fixed our hope on the living God. On the living God. So there Paul's already making this distinction that God is the living God, meaning in direct opposition to any other gods or false gods or idols. Uh, we've, we've fixed our hope on the living God. So because there's only one living God who is a saving God, there is therefore one Savior for all men, right? Kind of, and yeah, many commentators argue that. I think that's probably the closest contextual, right, um, way to go. But we do have to make the Bible 
um, consistent because it is consistent. So if we see a verse that we think, oh, how does that work? I mean, we know people go to hell. So in some sense, how is God the savior of all men? Well, he's not in that sense. So contextually, I think we can look for, for other ways. Some other guys point to, if you remember back from 1 Timothy chapter 2, where, we, where it said how God desires all men to be saved, another universal kind of statement by Paul. And there we saw that he's speaking of um, all men without distinction, right? He, would talk, he was talking about kings and those who are in authority. And in, and in that way, God desires all men to be saved, all different kinds of men. So Paul, in our text here, could also be arguing against um, maybe a Jewish influence from the false teachers, these men who wanted to be teachers of the law, Paul said in chapter 1, if they had some sort of exclusivism type of idea of who God actually desired to be saved, maybe it was just Jews again, maybe it was only those who practiced asceticism or those who followed the false teachers. But Paul's saying, no, that God is the Savior of all men without distinction. right? So all of those are, are definitely legitimate ways of looking at that, but we have to do the work of making the Bible consistent. right? So that's, that's definitely a job that we have to do um, the Apostle Paul certainly... Oh, Tony, you, see, you say something? Yeah, um, like in John 3, 16, when it says, God so loved the world, uh, the way that he loved was with the action by sending his son. Yes. So I'm thinking, like, every time, like in First uh, Timothy 2, where it has all, because it uses it several times, mm-hmm. it says, giving a thanks be made for all men, for mm-hmm. all that are in authority, uh, peaceable life, and all godliness and honesty. And it says... Uh, God, I say to you, we have all men to be saved. Mm-hmm. And it says he gave himself a ransom from all, for all. So he kept using that word, all, all, all. Right. Like, um, with an action, Christ was sent to the cross for all. In the same way, God so loved the world. You know what I mean? It seemed like that's what he's alluding to. Right. As far as atonement um, right, right. for the elect, it's in the application. Because it's only going to be applied to them. But as far as everybody else. There's only one Lord, one sacrifice that has been given for everybody. So right. in that way, he's the savior of all men. Without right. distinction? Yeah. Well, that's, that's, why, that's what we're saying. We're limiting the word all by the context. We're, we're not saying the all means every single person. We're not saying Jesus was sent and died for every single person. What I'm saying is, in the same way that the all was used for those other... Um, the other, the other like John 3.16 and stuff like that. Well, yeah, even yeah. on 1 Timothy 2, the one that I just talked about. Right. Um, that word all seems to be consistently used several times, even in the same context. So what I'm saying is, mm-hmm. it seems to be indicating that Christ is the Savior for all men. Kind of like, I don't know who he was, I didn't turn around, but when he said, um, it was only one Savior given to men. Right. right. So first you have oh, okay. one Savior given for all men, and that would be everybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's the Lord of all. Therefore, he is everybody's savior, but everybody's, the atonement is not going to be applied evenly. Sure. To yeah, that's right. Yeah, of course the atonement's not applied immediately. I was just going to uh, kind of come from it from the opposite um, mm-hmm. direction, kind of the conclusion of the other, the other end of the spectrum of interpretation, right? So if you take it to mean, um, in the Armenian sense of the word, mm-hmm. then the then the phrase is completely unintelligible mm-hmm. because he says that he's a savior of all men, and if that's speaking salvifically, then the next phrase is almost meaningless redundancy. Right. Right. right? 
So he's a savior of all men salvifically, but he especially somehow saved believers. Which is right. kind of an impossibility in the text. So it cannot mean that. Yeah. All, all they're gonna, all, you know, they're gonna say the Armenian perspective is gonna say that when Paul says he's the savior of all men, he means he's potentially the savior of all men, but he actually is the savior of believers or the elect. That's right. right? That's, I mean, that's what they're saying. But yeah, I, I definitely, I definitely get what you're saying there. Um, yeah, go ahead, Tony. So like when when Paul was saying God has commanded all men but to repent, mm-hmm. so that like you're saying, it's potentially one savior. And just as the gospel go out for all, goes to all. And in another passage, it says every creature. Yeah. So that would mean every man needs to hear the gospel. Yeah. Because there's only one Savior for every man. Yeah. But because of the election, we know that it's going to be applied only to elect. So in the true yeah. sense of the word atonement, the completion of the atonement is only going to the elect. True. While Amen. the intention is for everybody. That's why the gospel is being preached to everybody. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the thing, is, right, the, the little hinge on all that is that we don't know who the elect are. Right. So we can legitimately, and we should tell anybody and everybody that if they'll repent, Christ is for them. Right? right? But we're not telling people Christ is for them, and hopefully you repent, you know, and take Christ up on all that blood that he spilt. Right? right? So I guess, you know, there's a technicality there, but, yeah, I mean, Paul understood it. That Look at the text that I... Look, Paul did not have a, a corporate election type of view or a universal election in his theology. This is 2 Timothy 2.10, going to exactly to like what you're saying. What is Paul's perspective as he's preaching the gospel to everyone? Um, this is what he says in 2 Timothy 2.10. He says, For this reason I endure all things which I think is going to include all the work he does in missionary endeavors, spreading the gospel, planting churches, his suffering in these things. For this reason I suffer all things. For who? For all, without distinction. He says, for the sake of those who are chosen. The eclectos, the, the elect, you could translate it. That's who Paul's suffering for. A certain people, out of all these people he's preaching to, he's suffering in particular for those who were chosen so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus. Isn't that interesting that the Apostle Paul understood as he was preaching to all that really he, there was a group in the all that is really who he's there for in, that, in one sense? It's very interesting that Paul recognized that as he did this work. Um, but Paul showed no distinctions. Paul preached everywhere he could. He preached everywhere he could. And that's really, I mean, that's a trustworthy statement is that we should be preaching to all. I wonder, if sometimes, I wonder if sometimes people, you know, they have this idea in their head that, that it's God rejecting people, but really God sent a message to everybody, it's people rejecting him. People are definitely rejecting Same. him. Because he, no, he's not the one saying, you know, reject me. He's saying, you know, you, you've heard the message, accept it, don't accept it. Yeah, God, does, God doesn't have to force anybody to reject it. We all, by nature, want to reject it. God doesn't have to put a gun to the back well, yeah, of your head. Yeah. yeah, it's God ultimately that gives us the yeah. Um, yeah, that's right. Amen. Yeah, amen to that. Um, yeah, wow, time flew. I said there was 12 commands. I'm looking at it in my notes here at the third and fourth in verse 11. Um, we're there in verse 11. Paul's literally just repeating again to Timothy. Timothy, prescribe and teach these things. That's what Timothy, That's what Paul's writing all of this letter 
to Timothy about is to prescribe and teach these things. Um, he's telling Timothy, he's having to remind Timothy, don't let anybody look down on your youthfulness, right? Everybody's always interested in how old was Timothy. Well, it just in short, all the commentators agree that late 20s up until mid-30s most likely was Timothy. So he's not, he's not a child. He's not a child at all. Um, the Apostle Paul's actually given Timothy a very high calling, a very tough job. He's to go into this church, with an established church with established eldership, some of whom are going astray. And Timothy actually has to come in there and, and try to um, steer the ship aright and confront some of these men who were surely older than he was, and he had to confront them. Um, maybe the seventh command, we'll hit this one in verse 13. This is, this is definitely of importance as far as what Paul's telling Timothy to do. Paul says, until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. He's got to write the ship. There's been false teaching going on, and the truth needs to be um, emphasized. And so here, just as Paul already gave us, remember that balanced view of the Christian life, here he gives you a balanced view of ways in which the Word of God is to be used in the church. He just kind of lists these different ways it's used. Public reading... Um, especially in the early church, for what reason? Why would, why would they need to make sure that they spend time just reading the scriptures to people? <coughs> maybe more, even more than now, maybe. One, what do you think? Uh, I had a question about that. Okay. Now, is that specifically just for the pulpit? Would you interpret that? Or? No, 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 not just for the pulpit. I don't know that Timothy had a pulpit. Right, right. I don't, right. I don't, yeah. But, like, just for... for Preaching to his congregation, or preaching that, to the congregation. Does that include evangelizing also. Oh yeah, evangelizing too. I don't. Yeah, I don't know that this is specifically evangelistic. Uh, I think he's talking about all these things are for in the church, okay. right? In in particular, unless contextually there's a reason to think it's evangelistically. But yeah, I think this. I mean, I didn't come up with this either. But the thought is the reason this is to be encouraged, especially in the first century, is that most people did not have Bibles. Like we do. We can go home and read our Bibles all week long, right? But people did not have, especially New Testament manuscripts. I don't know how many that would have been circulating by this point, how many the Church of Ephesus actually had. Um, but they needed the scriptures to be read to them. So the church definitely took time. I mean, we still incorporate that. That's why we're reading the Psalms. I mean, we still just want to read the scriptures to you. He says exhortation. Exhortation, just this, this aspect of of the word of God, whereby you're encouraging the people to be obedient to the word. I, I assume that's uh, probably more of that aspect of preaching, that kind of preaching exhortation that comes with presenting the word, where you're calling people to be obedient to the word. He makes another category of teaching, which uh, he may be alluding to the more doctrinal or theological aspects of explaining the word of God. And, you know, he he, all of these are, are, are used together, of course, and I don't know how hard these lines are between these two. And I've heard the question asked, you know, some people ask, well, okay, there's preaching and there's teaching. Well, what's the difference between preaching and teaching? And I like the answer that I heard. They say, if you've never, if you have to ask the question, you've never heard preaching, right? Like, you should, you should know the difference. If you ever heard somebody preach, you know when somebody's preaching versus teaching, which... Yeah, that's, that's good as far as it goes, right? Um, 
what else? Let's let's end on this last two. Let's just end really quickly on the last two commands, because um, I think by way of application, these can apply to us, especially verse 16. Paul summarized by saying, Timothy, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Now, of course, this is a call originally to Timothy from Paul, but obviously it's a relevant call to all of us in some sense as well, that we're all to pay close attention to ourselves and to our teaching or to what we believe, right? Um, so there's a twofold watch being called for by the Apostle Paul to make sure that we're staying on the straight and narrow. We're to pay careful attention to yourself, he says, or to your conduct, to your life, right? Um, Paul told Timothy some, some specifics of that in, in chapter 4, verse 12. He said, to watch your speech, your conduct, he said, love, faith, purity, and to show yourself as an example. All of those specific ways, specific things in your life to pay careful attention to. And he also says, pay attention to your teaching. Make sure that you're, what you're teaching and what you believe is biblically sound. I like the way that Paul explained that in verse 6. He described it as the words of the faith. Don't stray away from the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine. You have to watch both of these things. Um, both sides of the coin are necessary for Christian life, and especially for Christian leaders. Um, obviously in the church, there's many who love doctrine, who love theology, but at the same time, they live very worldly lives. Then you can have people who seemingly seem to love people and to want to serve and give themselves to, to ministry, even in the church, but yet have no interest in sound doctrine, don't seem to care or put any weight behind sound doctrine. Both of these lifestyles or, or Christian walks are very imbalanced and very dangerous, actually. Um, they're very dangerous ditches that are to be avoided. So our lives, brothers and sisters, to be holy lives, to be godly lives, um, all obviously lived out of the basis of God's grace given to us through Christ's work on our behalf. And these lives are to benefit the church of God. That's what these gifts that are given to us, that's what the Spirit has given to us to do, is to minister in the church of God. So I'm, I'm totally out of time. Let's head over to worship. Amen. Thank you, Pastor. Yes, sir. Thank you.